You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us join our hearts in prayer. Our gracious God, your beauty surrounds us. Your glory is in our midst. We thank you for that beauty and that glory coming from the wounded side of our Savior. We thank you for his life's blood. It changes us, renews us, restores us, and makes us to be altogether new people. For this we thank you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to say how delighted and honored I am to be with you here again. I believe this is the third time that I have been to the Advent. It is always a great privilege and a joy for me, so I want to thank you for bringing me back. My message this morning will focus on a passage from the Old Testament, and in fact, all my messages will be from passages from the Old Testament. It's a kind of series I'm calling it Stranger Things from the Old Testament. So, um, so on each of these days you will see that theme develop. So, from the 19th chapter of Exodus, verse 7 through 9. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. And then, uh, what I really want to focus on is this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Last spring, my 17-year-old daughter urged me to watch 13 Reasons Why on Netflix. Since, as a college teacher, I always want insight into what makes young people tick, I watched it. It was not a joy to watch. But I kept with it to the end of the series. It is the story of a young woman who takes her life because she was constantly bullied by peers and let down by friends in her high school. I kept thinking that the series was filled with exaggerations. That is, Some kids might have a tough go of it in some high schools, but overall the series was fairly over the top. Surely, high schools aren't nearly as bad as the series makes them out to be. It was clear to me that most kids aren't bullied, and if there is bullying, it isn't very serious. But when I asked my daughter just how accurate she felt the movie was, in portraying contemporary high school life, I was surprised to hear her say that she felt it was spot on. 
So I asked one of my college classes if they had seen this series and if they felt it was accurate. I was surprised just how many had seen it and that most felt it was pretty accurate. If these young people are right, then my instincts about bullying are wrong. There is a lot of bullying, and it can be quite vicious and cruel. What really catches me off guard, though, is that these same college students who agree that bullying is quite a problem and who are themselves just out of high school don't seem either to be bullies or to have been bullied. Perhaps they cover themselves up pretty well. Many, if not most, of my students are the sir, yes sir variety. They are polite, respectful, and kind, even if they are not as studious as I might wish them to be. Perhaps now that they are in a new environment, in college, they are starting over, charting a new path, one in which they no longer play the role of either bully or victim. I hope that that is the case. It strikes me that high school youth, like many adults, struggle with matters of identity. My hunch tells me that to be human means that at times anyone will struggle with questions about who they really are. But I also think that these anxieties are aggravated in our modern era. I remember on occasion having bad days in high school back in the 1970s. I would go home, go to my bedroom, close the door, and as my own kids put it, chill or veg out. Eventually my peace of mind was restored. How different for high schoolers today. I suspect that they go to bed with their phone. And this inhibits their ability to unwind or get downtime. Instead, they are incessantly plagued by Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, and other annoyances that disturb their peace of mind. And unfortunately, they don't know when to quit. How very different was our country a century ago? There were no cell phones then, and the majority of Americans still lived on the farm. They didn't have to struggle with identity as much as we do because there weren't a lot of options or roles for them to choose. There is no choosing about when to milk the cows or shoveling in the barn or when to harvest or when to mend fences. These are all chores which simply must be done for people to survive. When one is working hard, 14-hour days every day, and physical labor at that, not much time can be spent on the question about who one really is, whether or not one is accepted, whether life has meaning, and the like. Those questions hardly matter. But at some point, the scales tipped. By the 1920s or so, more and more people moved to the big city, no longer worked such back-breaking jobs, and had the time to explore their identity. Professors have a fancy phrase for the approach to life that has arisen from this. Professors call it the ethics 
of authenticity. What this means is that the purpose of life is for you to become more and more who you really are, provided no one is hurt in the process. But the quest for such self-discovery comes at a cost. That cost can be said pretty simply. There isn't a clear standard by which to determine your authenticity, your real self. And those who aim to accumulate as much pleasure in life as they can, provided they do no harm to others, often find themselves to be very unhappy. To me, what comes to mind is the Kardashians. I kept thinking about the young female protagonist in 13 Reasons Why. What if she had had a supportive church youth group in which to establish solid friendships? Would that have helped her? No doubt church youth groups aren't perfect, but there is more hope in them for the well-being of youth than purely secular venues. Why? Because though I understand this is not always the case, the ideal of Christ-like behavior, of love, would be welcomed among church youth. Identity remains an important matter, not just for youth seeking to find themselves, but for all of us. One of the most important things that happens in Christian faith is that God establishes your identity. He did so in the days of when most folks lived on the farm, and he still does so today. Sure, that goes against our culture, which says that the burden is on you to establish your own identity. But there is something really positive about God establishing your identity for you. You don't have to worry about any kind of standard, and as an educator, I'm used to these words, a measure, a rubric, a metric, by which to figure out if you really have pulled off authenticity. Instead, God breaks that all apart for you, just as he did for Israel. God says point blank to you, you are my treasure. You are precious to God, just like jewels might well be precious to you. The Hebrew word for treasured possession is segula. And I think that's worth your time to own this week. I want you to repeat that word on the count of three so it, it gets into here. I'm going to say it one more time, segula, and then one, two, three, I want you to say segula. As I understand it, a Hebrew woman not having pockets or aprons, let alone safes, safes or safety deposit boxes, would chisel a hole through a coin or precious metal and hang this treasured possession around her neck, keeping the treasure close to her heart. This is how God gives you an identity. You are precious, like a precious gem, close to the heart of God. Remember the original context in which God gives this identity to his people. He had brought them, as the scripture says, on eagle's wings, out of bondage, out of slavery, out of servitude to Pharaoh, and was in the process of bringing them to the promised land. Let's go back to 13 reasons why. 
picking on someone over time can really affect that person's behavior. They lose confidence in their ability to succeed. They start to doubt their own instincts. They feel sorrowful a good portion of the time. And they often get used to it. So they don't know who they would be if they weren't bullied. Pharaoh and his minions were tyrants. To enslave people is worse than bullying them. But God is a promise-keeping God. God who promised Abraham and Sarah descendants. God who promised them land and to bless them had no intention of allowing his people to be slaves forever. Pharaoh and his minions paid for their bullying as they drowned in the Red Sea. God rescued his people. They had always been a treasured possession, a sagula, even when they were slaves. God proves his truthfulness indeed, rescuing his people from slavery and in word, validating them, granting them a new identity. They are no longer slaves. They are free. They are no longer objects of mistreatment, but instead cherished and prized. God affirms his people not because they are perfect, but because they are his people. This is why God is so adamant in pursuing prodigals. God's love defines his children, not their misdeeds, or for that matter, even their good deeds. And that is simply spelling out our common Reformation heritage. Not even our good works can save us, but instead faith alone and the power of Jesus' blood to cleanse us from sin. Driven by our quests for authenticity, for really becoming and affirming ourselves, we seek to validate ourselves by the stuff or the experiences we accumulate. Insecure to the core, we are jealous of what others have and often feel that we are missing out to top it all off. We suffer what the French, and again here, another fancy word, anomie, what they mean by that is a restless feeling of purposelessness. That leads us to ask, is keeping up with the Joneses really worth it? How can we really know that all our efforts to validate ourselves really does the trick? How different is our God? We seek to validate ourselves by how many experiences we check off the bucket list or how much stuff we can accumulate. In contrast, God doesn't need any such things to make him love us either more or less. The rock of ages teaches us nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. God will have us on no other basis than that we humbly admit that everything we have is a gift. As St. Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? Every breath of air we take, every swallow we make, everything we see or do, it's all a gift it is all grace. It is all mercy. When it hits home that it's a gift, what other choice do we have than to thank and praise, serve and obey 
our God. When you read the Holy Scriptures, it's tempting to think of the Holy Land as a big place. We imagine it panoramically, like a 1950s Hollywood big screen epic with Pharaoh's army pursuing Charlton Heston as Moses or David standing up against Goliath and all the Philistine hordes or Israel's defenders as guerrilla warriors like Judas Maccabeus fending off the mighty legions of Babylon, Greece or Rome. Now all these big armies did in fact envelop the Holy Land but our imaginations about the Holy Land's geography are greatly exaggerated. It's a little place. It's only 70 miles from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee. To put some perspective on it, it's 84 miles from Birmingham to Huntsville. God gave Abraham land, but not a big imperial landscape like Russia or China or even our beloved USA. Back in the 70s, Israeli minister Golda Meir once teased how Moses could lead the children of Israel to the one place in the Middle East without oil. God loves his people not because they are mighty or full of wealth or prestige. If you have a child, you love that child not because of awards or medals or trophies accumulated or even because of that child's looks but instead because that child belongs to you. When you look into that child's eyes, you love him or her regardless of what anyone else in the world thinks of him or her. In the same way, you, a sinner, are beloved by God. God loves you not because you are a sinner or because you are a saint, though in fact you are both, but because you belong to him. You are God's cherished and priceless treasure. It is for this reason that God sent His Son. God is angry at sin. This is because because God cares about His creation and His creatures. Nothing can quell that wrath other than God Himself. The Son came to the world not so much because we owe God a debt that as sinners we cannot render, but instead in Christ God does not so much fix the crack within creation caused by sin and death, but instead comes to make all things new. In closing, during Lent, I sometimes listen to the famous musician J.S. Bach, his St. Matthew's Passion. It's an oratorio that presents the story of Christ's suffering and death based on the Gospel of Matthew. It is potent and powerful music. But as stirring as it is, I'm always left dissatisfied with it. Why? In this music, Bach gets us to Good Friday. But he doesn't get us to Easter. Now, no doubt, it wasn't his intention to get us to Easter. After all, this is music for Lent. But what is Lent without Easter? What is Jesus' suffering all about apart from resurrection? Dear friends in Christ, the Lord is risen. Jesus rose precisely that the truth will hit home with you, that you are God's treasured possession, God's segula. This you will be not only today and tomorrow, but also forever. 
in Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.